Chapter 9. Fruit Eaters. So, wait. You and Gamma going back there? With the box? Asked Waylon, running the hurried plan through in his mind. That means... Jim nodded. Yeah, it means you need to row back to the Archon. Waylon's eyes bulged as he looked out at the water, his face growing pale. He wiped his palms on his robe and nodded toward Nix. All right. I guess we can do that. Jim hesitated. Uh, Waylon, I need Nix to stay here on the beach for the fire. But you can do it, mate. It's not far and the water is calm. But the cable. I I can't row and hold the cable. He flustered, pacing now and staring out at the ship. We'll tie the cable to the boat. Gam reassured him. It'll once pull from here. Then you just connect it up and send the captives down it. Jim explained again as Gam darted away to fetch the salvaged wire. Captures. Sound captures. Waylon corrected him absent-mindedly. See, that's why it has to be you, mate. Nobody else knows how, do they? All right, Jim. If you say so. The techsmith swallowed and clambered awkwardly into the small boat as Gam returned with a long coil of cable looped over one arm. They dragged each of the four cables back to the beach, kicking at the hungry crabs that clung on until they'd found the longest remaining length. One end, Gam now tied to the prow of the rowboat, the other was coiled near the tree line and connected once more to the tech crate. Is the talker as loud as it will go? Gam asked, adjusting the thick bandages that protected his ears. Speaker. It's called a speaker. But yes, it's all the way up. Waylon grasped for the side as Jim and Gam heaved the boat into the shallow water, sending their terrified friend drifting slowly back toward the Archon. Is he going to be all right? Jim muttered to Gam as they watched him fumble at the oars. He's going to have to be. Come on. Together they dashed back up the beach toward Nix, who had stacked the wooden spars and mast scraps into a loose tower and was now draping them with green ferns. They will make it smoke more. Lots of smoke, she signed. Then something seemed to occur to her. How will I start the flames? Jim pulled the wrench knife from his belt and handed it to her, grip first. Use this. There are rocks near the cliff you can strike it on. He looked at the makeshift bonfire. The wood was thick, the ferns damp and green. A spark would never catch. He pulled the grubby bandage from his head and held it out, being careful not to look at her with his exposed smicken eye. This will catch the spark and burn well. She took the bandage and teased the cotton fibres apart, nodding. When it is burning, I will find you. Jim shook his head earnestly. No. You swim for the Archon. Find a way to signal the crew. Before she could object, he grasped her arms firmly and pulled her into a hug. Gam waved at her bashfully and managed to half make the sign for luck, and then he and Jim were off, sprinting for the trees. The plan had been thrown together in minutes as soon as they had faced the cold reality that the rest of the crew were unreachable. The pirates were afraid of the fruit eaters, only there weren't any on the island. Every minute that passed they would grow more confident of that, 
and then it was only a matter of time before they found the Archon. But not if they could be persuaded that there were fruit-eater cannibals here, after all. First of all, Nyx would light a great smoking fire on the beach. Whatever gods looked over the Archon, or perhaps those that were worshipped in Kimpaka, had obviously smiled upon them, and a fresh breeze was blowing right from the Archon's hide toward the pirate intruders to carry the smoke. Next came the hard part, Waylon's contribution. Jim and Gam would carry the tech crate into the trees, up the cliff, and as close to the pirates as the salvaged cable would allow. Then Waylon would activate the sound capture he'd made of the ship's band, specifically Kaber's drumming, and send it down the cable from the Archon to the speaker in the crate. Then came the final piece of the illusion. With the pirates smelling fire and hearing drums, Jim and Gam would throw the poisoned fruit from the trees and see them off for good. At least, that was the plan. The crate was heavier than it looked, and they had to run the cable off the ground, hanging it in the low branches for fear that more of the colourful crabs would show up to feast upon the sleeving. Eventually, as they reached the crest of the hill that overlooked the pirate cove, the wire ran taut. Together, they wedged the crate carefully in the boughs of a tall tree so that the sound might carry better. They dared not shake branches to dislodge fresh fruit. The movement might alert the pirates or scatter noisy birds to the wind, but there was fruit abundant lying on the ground, mouldering and fermenting in the sun. Together, Jim and Gam collected it into a wet, pungent pile of ammunition and crept down the slope toward the beach. But they had taken too long. By the time they spied the pirates, they were already wading back to their inflatable boat, the small engine coughing and spluttering. They're heading for the next beach, whispered Gam. That's the Archon, Waylon and Nix. Jim could smell the first tinge of Nix's fire upon the air, but that blessed breeze had died away and no smoke was yet visible. What would the captain do? They had to hurry and do without. Grasping Gam's arm, Jim dashed back toward the speaker, lifting the curious curved handset that would connect him to Waylon. Now, Waylon. Play it now. Hurry. There was a terrible crackling sound, and Jim thought he could hear Wayland's voice distorted and garbled over the noise. Then drums. Caber's drums, terribly loud, reverberating through the trees, but broken up. Hissing and fizzing and obviously false. Panicking, Jim fumbled with the dials until the sound dropped down to a low whisper. He held his breath. The boat engine stopped. Gam hissed for Jim's attention a dozen yards away where he'd found a cast of the hungry multicoloured crabs marching up a tree trunk, tearing strips off the wire's plastic sheath. He swung at the creatures with a branch, swatting them aside and kicking them into the undergrowth, but they had already savaged the cable. Suddenly, an ear-splitting crack rang out, sending half a hundred birds squawking and fleeing the trees. Overcome with pain, Gam cried out, dropping the branch and clutching at his ears. Right! Show yourselves! came a gruff response from the beach, along with the splashing of water and the re-cocking of a long gun. Jim peered through the ferns and down to the sand. One of the pirates was stalking right toward them, gripping a handgun. 
The others had trained their long guns on the trees toward the source of the speaker sound and Gam's cry. He tried to breathe through the fear and think. The crabs had eaten through the cable so there would be no drums. There was a faint whiff of smoke on the air, but not nearly enough to scare them off. All he had left was the fruit. Would it be enough by itself? It took all the nerve he had to creep back toward his pile of mouldering fruit, belly crawling beneath the canopy of fern and not daring to look up. He grasped a pair of the rotting projectiles. The pungent juice dribbled down his trembling hands, staining his skin red. He could hear footsteps now, drawing closer. He would have to stand in order to throw. If he burst out of the undergrowth, in view of the pirate, it would all be over. He'd be shot in a heartbeat. But if he hesitated or waited too long, the pirate would reach Gam or find the tech crate. The footsteps grew closer, crashing through the ferns ahead. Jim tried to place them. Was he fifty feet away now, or only ten? It was impossible. He longed for Gam's hearing. Gam. His friend was right at the source of the noise the pirate was heading for. Jim had left him there, clutching at his sensitive ears. After the thundering gunshot, he might already be deaf, like Nick's, and unable to hear the approaching killer. Jim had to do something. He couldn't let cowardice paralyse him this time. Forcing himself above the canopy, Jim peered through the ferns, right into the face of the pirate. The face was gaunt, the bones beneath the skin and stubble clear to see, the nose unusually large and hooked. The man's eyes widened at the sight of movement in the undergrowth, and suddenly Jim found himself staring down the barrel of the handgun. The gun barked just as Jim threw himself aside and into a roll. Oi! cried the pirate as Jim disappeared from view, and the gun spoke again, this time spattering Jim with scarlet. His ears rang out, and he looked down at himself, fearing a wound, but instead finding the remains of one of the fruits. There was an agonised cry from Gam a short way up the hill, and the pirate whirled the gun around, striding toward the spot where the tech crate and his friend were hidden. Clambering unsteadily onto reluctant legs, Jim charged forward to intercept. Or tried to. Only his feet didn't move. He tried again and found that he was rooted to the spot and trembling violently. He knew, in that moment, that he was going to stand there, coward, half hid in the undergrowth, while his friend was found and killed. A movement caught his eye, and with it a terrible, warbling cry. Something was crashing through the trees, a horrifying figure running right at the pirate, arms raised. Their skin was grey and thick and cracked, blood smeared in primitive spirals over war paint. A fruit eater. The pirate spun to face them and tried to train his gun, but the intruder darted left and then right, screaming in a foreign tongue and brandishing a bright blade, thrusting it toward the pirate, who seemed struck with fear, not knowing whether to shoot or to run. A chill shot down Jim's spine as he recognised the blade as his own wrench knife. Suddenly, the deafening rhythm of drums erupted, echoing all around the trees, and at last it was too much. The pirate dropped his weapon and fled. Fire! The 
Cars are fire! cried the gunman's companions as he burst from the trees, and finally Jim saw it. A great column of black-grey smoke rising like a pillar from the beach beyond the hill. Regaining control of himself at last, Jim hurled the bruised fruit that was still clutched in his arms, then another and another. Some of the missiles exploded against trees, others crashed down to the sand, sending the panicked pirates charging through the shallow water to throw themselves inelegantly into their boat. Breathless and still trembling from fright, Jim turned toward the fruit eater, trying not to think about what they must have done to Nix to win the knife from her. If they were lucky, she had only been taken prisoner and could be bargained for. As he approached the bloody figure, his palms raised in a show of peace, he tried to remember who it was that had first described the island's inhabitants as cannibals. As he drew near, he saw that the fruit-eater was watching the pirate's inelegant flight and laughing. They seemed skinnier and less terrifying now that they weren't screaming and brandishing the knife. Almost familiar. Pretty good, you think? They signed. Think I even scared you for a moment there. She tossed the knife to him, then swatted at a small cloud of flies that buzzed about her, and Jim realised at last that the blood was not blood at all, but the juice of the poison fruit, painted in crude patterns above a thick, cracked layer of clay. He shook his head in disbelief and rushed forward to wrap Nix into a hug. Mid-embrace, he realised awkwardly that more than half of her clothes were missing, and stepped back bashfully. Gam. He used the name sign they'd invented, a hand cupped to each ear. He is hurt. Come. Together they rushed toward the sound of the drums and found Gam slumped between two trees, hunched over the cable. Blood stained his ear bandages and his eyes were screwed shut. As they moved him, the drumming suddenly abated and the cable slipped out of his hands. He'd been holding two broken ends together, his fingers twisting the copper fibres within, his hands unable to protect his ears. He smiled feebly upon seeing Nix and waved away their concerns. I'll be fine, he whispered. It happens. Just needs a heal. Rest. He winced at some distant sound and added, Help is coming. Moments later, Puggle appeared high above them, and soon Slip came charging through the undergrowth, snatching the farlocker from Jim without a word and spying after the fleeing pirates. Organ and not. Some of the SARS old crew, he said, collapsing the spyglass and looking round at Darge and Kaber, who came crashing through the trees behind him. You were right. All the wires were cut, Darge panted, noticing the knife in Jim's hand. And someone set fire to all the rigging on the beach, yelled Kaber. Some sort of signal. What happened, Jim? Slip demanded. Where's Waylon? We told you not to let the Archon out of your sight. We didn't. Well, not at first, but Gam heard them, see? Ogan and Not, and a third one. And we tried to call you all back, but the lines were dead, so we tried to scare them off. It's true, Slip. Gam spoke, his voice hoarse and strained. We were tended to be for... But he trailed off as Darge stooped over him, shushing him and inspecting his bandages tenderly. Slip studied Jim for a while, frowning, then turned to Kaber. 
Fetch the captain. Tell him what's happened. Caber grinned wickedly and disappeared back into the trees. I hope you're telling it true, Jim, Slip sighed. The captain isn't fond of being disobeyed. Jim found his palms suddenly clammy and the trembling began to return. Waylon is on the Archon. You can ask him. Slip didn't reply, but crouched in the undergrowth and plucked the pirate's handgun from the dirt. Moments later, the captain strode into the clearing, with Puggle coiled on his shoulder and Caber hurrying along after, a rope now clutched in his hands. Slip handed Cap the discarded handgun. Whose doing was this? Cap demanded, looking between them and following Gam's nervous glance toward Jim. He fixed Jim with a hard stare, and Jim was again painfully aware of his exposed bad eye. I gave you specific instructions, and when it mattered most, you ignored them. No, I... we didn't. Jim looked to Gam for support, but his sister blocked him from sight. He looked at Slip, but the kindly bosun wouldn't meet his gaze. Nix frowned between them all, struggling to read the scene. The captain shook his head in disgust and turned his back. Caber, tie him up. Nix stepped forward to intercede, but Slip put himself between her and Jim, shaking his head. Caber eagerly bound Jim's wrists and then dragged him to his feet. The captain nodded to Slip and strode away, and Jim found himself dragged along behind, Caber on one arm, Darge on the other. Cap, I'm sorry. Jim called. We were just trying to scare them off. I should have left someone in sight of the ship. I see that now. <laughs> the air rushed out of his lungs as Caber's fist met his abdomen, and he found himself barely able to breathe. Captain's made his mind up. Darge growled sternly. No changing it now. They dragged him up a steep, rocky path, and eventually to an outcropping of rock that hung over the water. Jim could see a dozen islands from here, the smoke trails of the fruit eaters on some, and could even glimpse the rotting hulks of the graveyard beyond. The captain tossed the handgun over the edge, and Jim felt his heart beat many times before he heard it splash below. The captain's eyes blazed as he turned back to Jim. Neil. Wait, Kip. Caber protested. You're sure you want to do this? Caber, hissed Darge, and Jim felt her foot in the back of his knee, sending him sprawling to the floor before the captain. Jim Hatcher, you have rushed into danger without thinking, the captain pronounced. You have stolen and profited from that stealing. Jim's mind raced. What had he stolen? The weld gear? But that wasn't me. But... He stammered. But the captain went on. You have done violence against your fellow man. Jim remembered the man in the alley. It was self-defence. You have endangered yourself and your crew. No, well, yes, but we had to do something. You have been told what to do and have disobeyed. Yes, yes he had. But it worked. The plan worked. Surely that counted for something. The captain paused, letting his judgment sink in, then nodded sadly at Darge and Caber. Darge leaned down, checking his bonds, 
and then with savage strength ripped his new shirt from his back. Jim's eyes watered, and he barely heard the lapping of water fifty feet below over the pounding of his heart. Before he knew what was happening, he felt strong hands lift him, and he was thrown clear of the cliff, plummeting to the waves below. The impact stunned him, and suddenly he was kicking at the water, fighting for the surface that could have been anywhere. His lungs burned, and he strained against his bonds, and found to his amazement that the thick rope fell free. He scrabbled, and suddenly his ears roared, and he was clear of the water, gasping for air. He found the waves were not so tall, after all, and the cliff above not so impossibly far away. There was a laugh beside him, and he turned to see grinning faces in the water with him, splashing him. Arconauts. Kelpie was there, and Boulder, and the twins, all frolicking in the water and smiling as he choked and spluttered. Mighty Boulder scooped Jim in his arms and lifted him clear of the waves, carrying him to the beach. Slip stood in the sand smiling, with Gam alongside him, and Nix washing the clay and blood from her skin. Behind them, the captain was striding down the beach with Darge and Kaber in tow, his stern gaze replaced now with a wide, devilish grin. He held his hands up and shrugged. You'll have to excuse the theatrics, Jim. It's something of a tradition, he smiled. Even Darge smiled beside him, only Kaber seemed unable to enjoy the moment. Taking the wrench knife from Slip, the captain soared at the short, purple fabric that barely covered his ribs, tearing a narrow strip free. Jim Hatcher, you have rushed into danger without thinking, he repeated, the words solemn now. You have stolen and profited from that stealing. You have done violence against your fellow man. You have endangered yourself and your crew. And best of all, you have been told what to do and have disobeyed. He leaned in close, pressing the purple sash into Jim's hands. Welcome aboard, lad. Seems you might be cut out for this after all. A hush fell over the gathered crew, who studied Jim expectantly. He looked at their faces. All seemed anxious to see what he would do next. Then it came to him. Reaching up, he tied the fabric aslant about his head, covering the bad eye as the bandage had once done. As he turned to face the crew, gathered in the shallow water before him, they cheered, whooping and splashing and rushing to congratulate him. As the crush of jubilant crewmates dissipated, Jim saw Waylon standing, pale and unsteady, next to the rowboat, with North at the oars. He looked around at the grinning sailors, and at Jim, shirtless, puzzlement knotting his face. Wait! What did I miss? The next days were as close to happiness as Jim had ever found himself. It turned out that despite the failure of the speak wire, one of the teams had identified a suitable mast, and a great labour was taken up to fell the tree and drag her down to the beach to be carpentered. Now a fully-fledged Arconaut, Jim found himself sharing in the chores, or watches, as the crew called them. But rather than resent the work, he revelled in the sense of camaraderie and purpose that had always been lacking in life aboard the Trossel. 
His shirt was returned, and one of his first jobs was to stitch it into the fabric of the patchwork sails alongside all the others. It was another of their curious traditions, and a task from which he came away with bloody, sore fingers, but also a tremendous sense of belonging. And for all the work, there was just as much play. It turned out that the crabs that had wreaked so much havoc with the cabling were in fact working on pure instinct. It seemed they had long ago been spliced to seek out and digest plastics. Indeed, their thick, multicoloured shells were made of the stuff. Whalen took a pair of the newly christened polycrabs to his workshop to study, but the rest of the crew found great joy in racing the colourful creatures across the island using scraps of plastic as lures. For exercise, a pair of sand masts and ropes were erected on the beach, and Jim soon learned the rules to the game of Castle Ball, an athletic and tactical game played between two teams of five using a large monkey's fist knot for a ball. On the third day, North fabricated a short mast and sail for the rowboat and taught Jim how to sail her in the narrow channels between the islands. It was tremendous fun being so close to the water, but still dry and fast. One time they even had to see off a raft of real fruit-eaters that paddled out to appraise them. By night, the work abated, and the crew would gather around fires on the beach to sing, play music, drink North's latest distillation, and make merry. Nix answered many questions about her home, and quickly established herself as a wondrous teller of stories, aided by Jim's translations. Before long, most nights ended with her fireside tales of the fairies, and especially of the fantastical traditions they clung to, of their ancestors who walked upon the moon, and of the wizards of ages past who flew through the skies like birds. Jim faltered often, Nix having to explain the curious signs for ancestor, tecromancer, and astronaut before he could convey them to the enwrapped crew. He felt a bitter guilt that, once again, he had taken all the credit for an act of courage that was almost entirely her doing. Just like in Shoalhaven, he had spent most of the time paralysed with fear while she charged the enemy headlong. But the crew lauded him with praise and reward while she was overlooked. But she simply shrugged when he confessed his guilt. I won't tell them, she laughed wickedly. It will be our secret. Besides, they can't make me an Arcanaut, can they? Indeed they couldn't, for the ship's articles, which Jim was now forced to memorise, were quite clear on the matter of women aboard, though somehow nobody seemed to think this applied to Daj. There were laws detailing the limits of the captain's control and the votes that would take place outside of those limits. Laws detailing the punishments for stealing from the hold or galley or for tussling with your crewmates. And even laws for the proper way to take a ship from a fellow captain. And pages, whole pages that Jim had to struggle through one troublesome word at a time that detailed in specifics the allocation of treasure and profit among the crew, including a bonus of first spoils for those that came across the bounty. On the fifth evening after the routing of the Reavers, as the events of the first day had been dubbed, Jim found himself translating the tale of Nix's capture and subsequent imprisonment. My old teacher and storyteller, Ol Wren, had died, and it was her funeral. A fairy funeral involves much singing in the deep moon caves. 
and it makes me sad not to hear. So I was on the surface, outside, swimming, as she taught me. I found a curious tech in the water. I think it was a time-teller, and took it to the shore. My friend came to fetch me. Lossalfime is protected, as you know, by great listener devices. And they had heard something, and the alarm had been sounded. But I was curious and went back for the tech, and I was caught, snatched by a great pox-ridden pirate with metal teeth. That's Johnny Hull, chattered one of the twins excitedly. And I ran, but then his friend, a terrible man, thick as a tree, cast a net over me. And that's Blaken, shivered the other twin. He's awful. Was Blaken, corrected Slip, crossing himself. Saw had them all killed, remember? And then I was stuffed into a boat and taken to their ship, the Mirror, and they all looked upon me with fear. The captain, a slimy man with a green hat. Nas, may he rest in peace, chimed North, drunkenly tipping a measure of drink to the sand. Well, Captain Narsis couldn't decide what to do with me, you see. So he called upon a fearsome old pirate. Ancient he was, with scars across his face where his eyes once were. Jim stopped translating, a shiver running down his spine. He turned to Nix. A bandage across acid-scarred eyes? Nix frowned, then nodded. Jim's mind raced. What's the matter, Jim? called the captain, over the impatient clamouring of the audience. She's describing an old blind pirate. Bandage, scars. Yes, he was called John Kane, nodded Cap. Nasty piece of work. Used to sail under Sar himself. Good riddance, too. Yes, only, only he's not dead, captain, Jim stammered. I saw him in Shoalhaven when they had Nix. He nearly caught me trying to help her. You're sure? The captain demanded, suddenly stern. Jim nodded, swallowing the iron lump in his throat and glancing at Nix. If he escaped Saar, that means... It means he can take them back to Lossalfheim. The captain finished, the colour draining from his face. And we've been here five days. Turning to the merry audience, he yelled clear above the noise. Everyone back to the ship, right now! We're leaving. Our voyage through the world of the Risen Tide continues in the next episode, which will be here in just a few days. New chapters will be released on Monday and Thursday every week, so hit subscribe to stay up to date, or if you just can't wait, the full tale is available today on Audible, Spotify and more. If you'd rather read than listen, head over to talesoftherisentide.com or Amazon to grab yourself a hard copy or ebook. Thanks for listening.